If you join me in Bible study today, please open up your Bibles to Zechariah. In Hebrew, that's Zechariah, the Lord remembers. And what the Lord is remembering in Zechariah 5.9 is that he promised to send the Messiah. And to regather Israel back into the land under the reign of Messiah. It's such a short book. How can it cover all that? Because God wrote it. Okay. You know the answer. Here we go. We're in Zechariah chapter 5, starting in verse 9. But for context, let's back up a little. And verse 5 says, Then the angel who talked with me came out and said to me, Lift your eyes now and see what this is that goes forth. So something else is coming out of the temple. So I asked, What is it? And he said, It's a it's a basket that is going forth. He also said, this is their resemblance throughout the earth. Here's a lead disc lifted up, and this is a woman sitting inside the basket. What does a woman indicate in prophecy? A religious system. This woman in the basket, the basket is covetousness. The desire to take everything from everybody else for yourself. And the heart of it is a false religious system. Then he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her down into the basket and threw the lead cover over its mouth. Remember that from last week? Actually, two weeks ago. Verses 9 to 11. Let's read them together, then we'll break them down. It says, then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women... What do women represent? False religious systems. So there's no longer just one false religious system, but it is breaking into pieces, if you will. And if we turn here to Revelation chapter 17, we can understand what it means by the fact that the number of women are multiplying. Revelation chapter 17. Starting in verse 3. I may as well start in verse 1. What's a couple more verses? Then one of the seven angels, these are the ones that are pouring out the judgment of God, who had the seven bowls, came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I'll show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. By a harlot, we're talking about a false religious system that is upon many nations around the world. With whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, that is, committed sin, in accordance with this false religious system. And we've talked before, why did King Henry VIII of England break off from Catholicism and start the Church of England? Because he had to get the Pope's permission to divorce his wife, and the Pope would not give it. He was not permitted to divorce his wife without getting permission of the Pope. One nation, like France, couldn't invade Spain without getting the Pope's permission. Everything the kings wanted to do, they had to get permission from the Pope. And the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. Wilderness or desert in, in Jewish thought is a habitation of demons. 
So this tells you something about this religious system. It's not a godly religious system. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. That is the kingdom of the false messiah in the last days. This false religious system still holds sway across the various nations that the false messiah rules. The woman was arrayed in purple. Purple is a symbol of what? Of royalty and? Yeah. And scarlet. Well, that's the color of religion. Uh, what color do the... Oh, how do I put it gently? Maybe I ought to not. Let's just go. And adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, which is probably the richest nation in the world, the Vatican. Having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. The cup that Rome serves, they call what? The blood of Christ, right? They say they're giving their adherents human blood to drink at every mass. What does the Bible say about drinking blood? Don't do it. It's an abomination unto God. So they say a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written. Mystery. What does mystery mean? Deeper meaning than what people have seen before. Babylon the Great. If you go back to Babylon in the Tower of Babel, what were they beginning to worship? The mother and the child, the Madonna it was called. That's not a term that started with Catholicism. That referred to Semiramis and Tammuz. The same Tammuz that Jeremiah says the people were worshiping in the courts of God. It says the mother of harlots, that that Babylonian mystery religion has filtered down through many religious systems across the ages. In Egypt... Semiramis and Tammuz just had other names. What was it? Isis and Osiris? And in Rome they had a different name. And in Greece they had a different name. But it's the same worship of the sun, moon, and stars. And of the abominations of the earth. So by mother of harlots it means what was once one false religious system multiplies through many nations and many um, into... into into many systems. We'll put it that way. Ishtar is an, an, an inference or an, a way that this Babylonian mystery religion has permeated. Let's go back to Zechariah chapter 9. Or chapter 5, verse 9. Yes, this religious was it brought it was brought into the worship of the Messiah and what's called syncretism. It's where you take that which is pagan and mix it in with the worship of God. And if you know anything about the fourth century, the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Laodicea, those councils brought in this sun god worship and moon goddess worship into the worship of the true and living God. Yeah. Yeah. What we want to be here is what would it have been like if you'd gone to services with Peter, Paul, James, or John in the first century? 
You wouldn't be drinking human blood or eating human flesh or worshiping on Sunday morning because that was the day they worshiped the sun god. Did you all watch the video, the link I sent out about Constantine and his true religion? Was Constantine really a Christian? It's really eye-opening, isn't it? You didn't see it? I'll send it out again. Okay. So we're in Zechariah chapter 5, verse 9. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Why would they lift the basket up between earth and heaven? As they're lifting that basket up, where are your eyes going? Toward the sun, the moon, and the stars, right? Why at the Tower of Babel did they build the Tower of Babel? Because they were trying to reach up to the sun, moon, and stars. And Satan's also called the prince and the power of the air. That's right. Verse 10. So I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they carrying the basket? In other words, they're taking the basket to the center of this pagan idolatrous worship. Where are they taking it? He said to me to build a house for it in the land of Shinar. What is Shinar? Babylon. Where does this false religious system originate from from Babylon when it's ready the basket will be set there on its base in other words it will be ready to rule and reign over the kings of the earth <clears throat> chapter 6 oops I have a question out there a comment let me go see what it is Danny has such good comments could he please speak louder Okay, with gusto. Okay. Zechariah chapter 6, verse 1. We have another vision. This book is full of visions. Then I turned and raised my eyes and looked, and behold, four chariots were coming from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. Think about the time period that Zechariah is writing. Where is Israel? Dispersed throughout the world, right? The northern kingdom was taken in the Assyrian captivity and scattered so completely around the world that they've been lost, been lost for 2,700 years. The southern kingdom of Judah, though, went into Babylon. Why did they go into captivity in Babylon? Because they wanted to worship the gods of Babylon. So this false religious system that originated at the Tower of Babel has infiltrated God's own people in Israel so that those who are supposed to be worshiping God and God alone have cut creches in his precious temple and put up pagan idols of the gods of the Babylonians. And they're gathering together in the courtyards and bowing with their backsides to God to worship Tammuz as the sun rises in the east. So this Babylonian worship system is infiltrating and infecting Israel too. So I turned and raised my eyes and looked and behold four chariots. These are four war chariots. They're not just oh let's say public transportation. They're under control of four angels. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. What's bronze a picture of? Bronze or brass? Judgment. 
So these four chariots are driven by angels of God to bring judgment for idolatry, worshiping of this false religious system. Verses 2 and 3 tell us about the different colors of the horse. With the first chariot were red horses. Let me just tell you, that red horse, that chariot represents Babylon. The ones who came and took the southern kingdom captive in judgment for their worship of the pagan gods. With the second chariot, black horses. Those horses represent Medo-Persia. They were the ones who brought judgment against Babylon in Daniel chapter 5. Do you remember what happened? Nebuchadnezzar had taken the southern kingdom of Judah captive, had destroyed the temple, and taken all the implements from the temple to Babylon. His grandson, when he became king, held a great pagan orgy to give praise to the pagan gods for having beaten the God of Israel. And he uses the cups, the vessels, that were taken from God's temple to toast the pagan gods. And that's when God's hand wrote on the wall, Mine, Mine, Tekel, you farsen. Which means your kingdom has been weighed in the balances, you've been found wanting, and it's over. But there are also numbers. What was it? What did he write? Mine, Mine, Tekel, you farsen. Mene is 50, Tekel is 1, Upharsin is a half. It had been 51 and a half years since they had destroyed the temple of God, and God said, not a day longer. And that very night, Babylon fell to Medo-Persia. The chariot with the black horse. The fact that God's angels are riding these chariots means it's not just coincidence that Medo-Persia overthrows Babylon at the time God appoints. That God is leading these armies to do his will, whether they know it or not. Verse 3, with the third chariot, white horses. These white horses represent Greece, the nation that overthrew Medo-Persia under the reign of which guy? Alexander the Mediocre. Yeah. Okay. Who died at how old? He was in his early 30s, right? And he had no children, so his, his kingdom was divided amongst his four generals. And there comes the story of Hanukkah, right? Out of those four generals. But there's another horse. With the fourth chariot, dappled horses, strong steeds. Who overthrew Greece? Rome. So that's what those four chariots represent. Verse 4. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? Shame he didn't come to our Bible study this morning. We could have told him, but no. Here's how we know. So he's asking the angel to explain the symbolism. Did the prophets of old always understand their prophecies? The answer is no, they did not. They did not. So verse 5, And the angel answered and said to me, These are four spirits of heaven... That's another way to describe angels who go out from their station before the Lord of all the earth. The Lord of what? All the earth. 
God is in control not just of Israel, but all nations. God gives kingdoms. God takes kingdoms away. We learn that from the book of Daniel chapter 2. When it says you go out from their station, means they were prepared and ready for the Lord to say, go. So they go as God dispatches them to be his emissaries. Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. How should we possibly have known that God was God of the whole earth? Well, we start with the Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Shema Israel. Shema is a commandment. It's not a suggestion. Here, O Israel, there is no O. That's just there for poetic reasons. So it's here, Israel. The Lord our God. So is the Lord the God of Israel? Of course. The Lord is one. If there's only one God, there's only one Lord, then who's he God of? Everybody, everywhere. And that's the point of the Shema. We have only one God, as does all the rest of the earth. If there is only one God, then when he speaks, who does he speak to? Everyone. Is there anything in the Torah that says God's commandments are for everybody? Let's go to Numbers chapter 15, verse 15. There are many other places, right, Daniel? There's many we could go to. This is just the one my Bible falls open to first. Numbers chapter 15, verse 15. Numbers chapter 15, verse 15. See, too many people think that God's commandments were just for the Jews, but the word Jew doesn't appear in the Torah anywhere. It doesn't appear until 2 Kings, right? So in Numbers 15, 15, and 16, it says, One ordinance shall be for you of the assembly and for the stranger who dwells with you. Who's the stranger who dwells with you? That's the Gentile who wants to worship God. An ordinance forever throughout your generations. For how long? Forever. Have we finished forever yet? Is it done? No. As you are, so shall the stranger be before the Lord. One law, one Torah, and one custom shall be for you and for the stranger who dwells with you. Is that pretty clear? Why doesn't it say something like that in the New Testament then? It does. It's 1 Corinthians. Let's turn up to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. Chapter 6, right? Chapter 7, verse 19. After that, I'll show you what was in chapter 6 that caught my eye. But chapter 7, verse 19 says, we ready? Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Meaning it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. 
Now turn back to chapter 6 because that's what really caught my eye as I was flipping pages. Verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Is that statement only to Jews or to all people? This is written specifically to a group of saved Gentiles. In 1 Corinthians 12, 2, it says, You know that you were Gentiles. So he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He's talking to the church at Corinth. What's another term for unrighteous? Lawless. Lawless. And of course, what did Messiah say in Matthew 7, 23 about the lawless? He said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Those are terribly, terribly important words. Let's go to Joshua. Joshua, in Hebrew, Yehoshua, which means the Lord saves. Some people think that Yeshua should be Joshua, and it's not. It's not the same thing at all. Joshua, Yehoshua, is the Lord saves. Yeshua means salvation. He is salvation itself. Joshua chapter 3, verse 11. Joshua chapter 3, verse 11. And then verse 13. So don't turn the page. Joshua chapter 3, verse 11. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over before you into the Jordan. So the Ark of the Covenant that God had the children of Israel create at Mount Sinai is called the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth. In Judaism it said, any blessing must start. Baruch hatah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, to remind us that he is not just our God, but he's the God of all people for all time. Staying in the same chapter of Joshua 3, go down to verse 13. It shall come to pass, as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. Notice the Lord is kind of like they're stuttering, but it's not. See, the Lord, that first Lord, is the tetragrammaton, those four Hebrew letters, yod heh vav heh, which goes back to Exodus 3, I will be whom I will be. And then the Lord of all the earth, that one is spelled with small, cap, small letters, not small capital letters, to indicate that is not the word, the tetragrammaton, that is the word Adonai. He is the Lord, meaning the master of all the earth, the one who, who's served by all of the earth. Let's go to Micah chapter 4. Micah. Micah in Hebrew, Micha, who is like? We sang Micha Mocha this morning. Who is like the O Lord amongst the gods? Micah is just short for that. Micah chapter 4, verse 13. It phrases it just a little bit differently. 
Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron. I'll make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in peace as many peoples. I will consecrate their gain to the Lord and their substance to the Lord of the whole earth. It's really pounding the table. The Lord of the whole earth, not just one nation, not just one people, but the God of all nations. Now Psalm 97. We're going to read the whole psalm, but the key verse is verse 5. Whenever I am preparing and I go and look at a verse like verse 5, I look at which of the rest of the chapter around it really gives meaning to that verse. In this case, it has to be the whole thing. It's a really neat psalm. And again in verse 5, we're going to see the Lord, which is the tetragrammaton with the word Lord, which is just master. So in Psalm 97, verse 1, it says, The Lord reigns. There's the tetragrammaton. He is the one who said, I will be whom I will be. In Exodus chapter 3. Let the earth rejoice. Which part of the world? All of it. Let the multitude of isles be glad. When does the Lord reign over all the earth? In the millennial kingdom. So this is a psalm that looks forward to the Lord ruling and reigning here on earth. Clouds and darkness surround him. That's in his coming, right? Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Yes, God is a God of love, but he's not just a God of love. He is a God of love to his children, but to his enemies. Think of his righteousness and justice. Does God let sin go unpunished? No. A fire goes before him. What's fire? Judgment. And burns up his enemies round about. This is his second coming, his return. His lightnings light the world. What does Matthew say? His coming is like a lightning flashing from the east to the west. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness and all the people see his glory. Let all be put to shame who serve carved images, who boast of idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. Few, Lord, are most high above what? All the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. That's what Mekamok is getting at. You who love the Lord... Do you love the Lord? Then it says, hate evil. You see that exclamation mark? That's not a suggestion, is it? Should we who love the Lord walk in sin and revel in the evils of the world? No, we should not. He preserves the souls of his saints. Revelation 14, 12. What is a saint? Those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. Not one or the other. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked one. Light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Sown for everybody, for the righteous and for the upright in heart. 
Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. I just thought that was cool. We would now look at 1 Corinthians 7.19, but we already did. So let's go to Revelation 1.5. Revelation 1.5. Revelation 1 5. We'll start in verse 4 because I don't want to start in the middle of a sentence. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, those are the ones in the chapters 2 and 3. Grace to you and peace. Grace is a Greek greeting, peace is a Hebrew greeting. From him who is and who was and who is to come. Who's that? who was from the beginning, but was crucified, buried, then resurrected, and lives forever. That's from our Messiah, Yeshua. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. That's Isaiah 11, 2, that describes those sevenfold spirit. And from Yeshua, the Messiah, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. Um, people keep getting caught up in that word firstborn, but notice, usually... It says firstborn from the dead, meaning the first one who was raised to eternal life. Hmm. And the ruler over the kings of the earth. It's not supposed to be the false religious system that rules over the kingdoms of the earth. It's supposed to be our Lord. Tim who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion for a little while, right? No, forever and ever. Amen. When does forever and ever end? It never does. Never does. So back to Zechariah chapter 6. Verse 6. How many times does God tell us that Babylon will rule, then be overthrown by Medo-Persia, then by Greece, then by Rome, and Rome will be overthrown by Messiah? He tells us at least three times in Daniel. He tells us here in Zechariah. He tells us in the book of Joel. Why does he keep doing that, do you suppose? In our book, what's that? So we'll remember... Yeah, and the book of Isaiah says, how do you know that I'm God? Only I can tell you the end from the beginning. How many people back in the days of Isaiah or Daniel could have flipped a coin and told you the four major world empires and the order they would reign? Nobody. So it just reinforces to us that our God truly is God. So in verse 6, we're going to get another view of it. The one with the black horses, who is that? Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia. Babylon was the red horse. So the one with the black horses is going to the north country. So the black horses is Medo-Persia. They're going to Babylon for what purpose? To overthrow Babylon. Again, God's saying, I'm going to tell you how it's going to happen. I'm going to tell you who's going to do it. The white are going after them. What are the white horses? Greece. Greece. Who overthrew Medo-Persia? Greece. Greece. 
and the dappled are going toward the south country. Wait a minute. The others went north. Medo-Persia overthrew Babylon, Greece overthrew Medo-Persia. What's south? Ah, that's Rome, actually. You went too far south. Yeah. So that's Rome going to the south. Again, God's saying, I know where the kingdoms will be. Verse 7. The strong steeds went out, eager to go, that they might walk to and fro throughout the earth. Why are they walking to and fro throughout the earth? To show possession. More than that. Looking for more to conquer. Looking for when it's time to conquer and who. Making sure they know the situation in the world. And he said, so God told him to go. Go, walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they walked to and fro throughout the earth. It's not time for all of them to overthrow a nation. But they're all going to be watching and waiting. They're on the move. It's a sign that God's judgment is sure to come. So even though Greece won't overthrow Medo-Persia for years yet, they're still on the move watching and waiting. And what this shows is the Lord sent them. The Lord is in charge. They do what God says. And they're ready to take action whenever God says go. Isn't this also happening today? Is this sort of a double meaning prophecy? We've oh. got nations like China, like Russia, um, European Union, Germany, America, who are going to and fro through the earth looking for conquest right now. Yeah. If we think about the Battle of Gog and Magog, which primarily involves Russia, Iran and Turkey, which will attack Israel from Syria. Where do you find Russian, Iranian, and Turkish troops today? In Syria. It's not time for them to attack yet, but they're there. They're looking. They're going to and fro because God has told them to be ready. And Israel has found great wealth. And Israel has found great wealth where? In the same place God said it would be, but in in the area of Dan and then in the ocean. So in the areas that God said, it's in the ocean just off the coast. It's up in the Golan area, which is where they will attack, is in the Golan. And God told us all the way back in the Torah that these great areas of wealth will be there and that Gog and Magog are going to come to attack to take booty, spoil. Mm -hmm. Depends on your Bible translation. In Zechariah 14, the nations of the world come to take booty and spoil. Everybody wants to take what God gave Israel. Everybody wants a piece of Israel. United Nations just had all these speakers. United Nations just had all these speakers. From governments around the world. From governments around the world. And basically, Netanyahu was there and he spoke. And Netanyahu was there and he spoke. All these other nations are anti-Semites. But all these other nations are anti-Semites. Yep. Yep. If you read... What did Bibi say? Ask for. What did Bibi ask for? I don't remember. 
Well, he announced the fact that he and Saudi Arabia are very close to a normalization agreement, and that will change the entire Middle East. And then, yeah, Ben Salman, mm -hmm. he talked about it too. But in the book of Ezekiel, chapters 38 and 39, that describe the Battle of Gog and Magog, is Saudi Arabia a militant participant? They are not. They are not. They're the ones standing back going, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? So they will have come to an agreement with Israel before that takes place. Well, they'll be, in, again, they'll be enriched. They know this. They will be enriched. They'll be enriched. Israel's uh, technology. By Israel's technology. And then Israel will be enriched. Together they will both be uh, built up. It's, a, it's, it's prophesied. Yes, it's prophesied. All, all and that's the point. We're seeing prophecy fulfilled before our eyes. Yes, Karen? All the countries will, be from will benefit from it. The way it was described last night is when Israel and Saudi Arabia come to a normalization agreement, the entire Middle East is going to settle down. Except for Iran. Because they're Except for Iran. Okay. So let's go back to Zechariah chapter 6. Why do I love studying prophecy? Because you can't study prophecy and not realize that God is real and the Bible is true. So verse 7, the Lord sent them. He gave them dominion. Medo-Persia didn't overthrow Babylon because the leaders of Medo and Persia were so great men. It's because God gave them dominion. Let's go to Daniel chapter 4 verse 17. Daniel chapter 4, verse 17. By the way, since somebody said, what did Saudi Crown Prince Ben Salman say? He said, yes, we are that close to a normalization agreement. It is going to happen. Verse 17, this decision is by the decree of the watchers. He's talking about angels. And the sentence by the word of the holy ones. Again, we're talking about angels. In order that the living may know, that's us, we're the living, that the most high rules in the kingdom of men gives it to whomever he will, and sets over it the lowest of men. So Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome don't conquer the world because they're the greatest military minds in history. They conquer the world because God decreed it. God gives kingdoms, God takes kingdoms away. That's the verse, Daniel 4, 17. Back to Zechariah chapter 6, verse 8. And he called to me and spoke to me, saying, What's that word saying? It's a quote. See, those who go toward the north country have given rest to my spirit in the north country. You know what that means? It means that God's judgment against Israel is satisfied. 
And now God is taking action against those who oppressed Israel. But didn't God allow them to conquer Israel? Yes. But did they go only as far as God decreed? No. They went beyond. Their desire was not to serve God, but to hurt people. And what does God do to the nations that abuse the apple of his eye? They are in for a great judgment, aren't they? Yes. Now let's go on because now we have another prophecy. You guys realize that Zechariah didn't write in chapters and verse numbers, right? Yeah. So we can change topics in the middle of a chapter and we're going to. Verse 9. Then... You think it's really then? It's just and. The word of the Lord. Who's the word of the Lord? John 1 1. Messiah Yeshua came to me saying, These are the words that came out of the Lord's mouth. For sin, receive the gift from the captives. What kind of captives? Those are in a captivity in Babylon. From Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have come from Babylon. And go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Keep a finger here. Go back to Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1. In the book of Isaiah, God had named Cyrus by name as the king who would overthrow Babylon. And that would have the temple restored back to God. Ezra chapter 1 verse 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia. So Babylon has just been overthrown. Medo-Persia has taken over. Cyrus is in charge. That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. That is that Judah would be in captivity for how long? Seventy years. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Once it's in writing and sealed, can it be changed? No. Saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. That's in Isaiah 44 and 45. Somebody read it to him. How much do you want to bet it was Daniel? <laughs> Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. Why does Cyrus say he is God? Acknowledging that the God named him by name 120 plus years before he was born. That's God. Yeah. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the free will offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So Cyrus does something you would never expect a Gentile king to do. He says, you can go back and build the house and you can take all the gold and silver you want. Normally a king would say, no, 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 you leave it in my kingdom. He said, no, take whatever you need, whatever you want. So if we go back to Zechariah, these men, Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, 
they are very wealthy men in Babylon and they choose to bring great amounts of gold, silver, and other precious things back for the building of the temple. And what does God do? He puts their names in the book. Why? Because he covets silver and gold or because he appreciates their heart that they love him so much. Verse 11, take the silver and gold. Make an elaborate crown. That's wrong. The Hebrew says make elaborate crowns, plural. Normally you think, well, there's only one crown wearer and that's the king. But that's the point of this prophecy here. Make elaborate crowns and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Since when do you put a crown on the high priest? Oh, it's symbolic of Messiah, the one who is both king and priest, right? That's the point here. They will put a crown on Joshua that will put one on Zerubbabel. One is representing the civil government. One is representing the head of the religion. And they both point to Messiah. Oh, don't you love it? So verse 12. Then speak to him saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. What kind of prophecy? In times. So it applied back then, yes, to Joshua and to Zerubbabel, but its ultimate fulfillment is in Messiah in the day of the Lord. Saying, Behold, what's behold mean? Is there something important about to be said? Yes. The man whose name is the branch. Zamach, T-S-E-M-A-C-H, T-S-E-M-A-C-H, Zamach. Everywhere Messiah is referred to as the branch, he's called the Zamach, except Isaiah 11.1, 1, where he's referred to as the branch, and there it's Netzer. He grew up in which village? Nazareth comes from the word Netzer. In the New Testament, there's a verse that says that it was prophesied he would come from Nazareth, and Bible scholars say, no, there isn't. There's not one anywhere. Yes, it's Isaiah 11.1. 1, that he was the one from Netzertoth, the good branch, or Nazareth. But this one is Zamach. Behold the man whose name is Zamach. From his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Let's break this down. First, well, we all know when a capitalized man and capitalized branch, they're talking about Yeshua. He is that branch. And let's go back and look at Isaiah 11.1, 1, the one place where he's called the Netzer. We all know it. But there's somebody out in the internet world who's going to say, I don't know that. If you wonder why there's so much duplication in the way we teach, it's because somebody out in internet land may just listen to this one. It's the only one they'll ever listen to. So we don't want to leave holes in it. So verse 1, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, that's a shoot from the stump, and a branch, there's Netzer, shall grow out of his roots. That's the one place that is different. But let's look at the other places where he's referred to as the branch 
and it is Zamak. Go first to Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2. Isaiah 4.2 gives us a time period. Let's make sure everybody's there. It says, in that day. What day? Day of the Lord. The branch of the Lord, that's Zamak, shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the earth shall be excellent appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. Have escaped what? The tribulation period, yes. So Messiah is called the branch of the Lord, beautiful and glorious, when he's sitting on the throne in the millennial kingdom here on earth. And to continue the teaching in verse 3, it says, And it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Which portion will? All who are left will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem, which means what? They have all been saved. That's the fulfillment of Romans eleven twenty six and 27, which says, and all Israel shall be saved. Verse 4, when? When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. That's Zechariah chapter 13. They've been put through the fire seven times, representing the seven years of the tribulation period, and through that process have gotten saved by faith and had their sins forgiven and washed clean in the shed blood of our Messiah, Yeshua. Verse 5, Then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion, and above her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day, and the shining of a flaming fire by night. Does that make you think of the wilderness when God was over the tabernacle? It says, for over all the glory, there will be a covering. What is that word for covering? Anybody know? It's chupa. Chupa is the wedding canopy. Who dwells under the wedding canopy but the bridegroom and the bride? And there will be a tabernacle. A sukkah for shade in the daytime from the heat, for a place of refuge and for a shelter from storm and rain. And a reference, of course, to the tabernacle tells you that the Lord establishes the kingdom at the Feast of Tabernacles. That, according to Leviticus 23, is the concluding assembly, the Atzeret. When that happens, all the appointed times of the Lord have been fulfilled. It will be kept throughout eternity as a memorial, not as a prophecy. They will have been done, but they will be kept as a memorial. Jackie, you're shaking your head. Can you give me a verse? Zechariah 14, 16? Yes, she's right. Zechariah 14, 16. So let's go turn to Zechariah 14, 16. Wait, that's in the book of Zechariah. How about that? Which is just where we happen to be. Zechariah 14, 16 takes place when the tribulation period is over. Armageddon's over. The sheep and goat judgment in Matthew 25 is over. Messiah sits on the throne as we find in Ezekiel 43. It says, and it shall come to pass that everyone, how many? Everyone who's left of all the nations, where nations means Gentiles. 
which came up against Jerusalem. That was for the battle of Armageddon. All that are left shall go up from year to year, which means every year without fail, to worship the king. Which king? Messiah Yeshua. The Lord of hosts. He's the king. He's Messiah sitting in the temple. And to keep the feast of tabernacles. Who's going to keep the feast of tabernacles? Everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. I thought the feasts and festivals were only for the Jews. Uh-uh. They're for all people, and that's going to be true forever. All righty, let's go then to Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah 23. We're still looking at the branch. What does Jeremiah say about the branch man? Jeremiah 23 verse 5. It goes right with Isaiah chapter 4. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Let me know when you're there. You're there. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. That's our Messiah, Yeshua, born 2,000 years ago. But when Jeremiah wrote it, that was still hundreds of years in the future. Let's take a point of reference. When did the United States become a nation? 1776. So how long ago is that? Answer is less time than it was from the time that Jeremiah gives this prophecy till Messiah is born. Does that put it in perspective? If somebody in 1776 said, you know, in the year 2023, Joe Biden would be president of the United States, would that have shocked you? Yeah. Yes. And yet, and <laughs> remember the recording's still running. So in Jeremiah 23, 5, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. That's our Messiah, Yeshua. A king shall reign and prosper. So, raised to David a branch of righteousness, that was 2,000 years ago. A king shall reign and prosper, that's at least seven years from now. So God can cover 2,000 years in a sentence. And he will execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Is that what Isaiah 11 is about? Verses 3 and following? Yeah. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. That means Judah and Israel will both be back in the land. Judah is in part back in the land, but what about the lost ten tribes? They're still scattered. They don't return until Messiah takes his throne. And he calls them back because they don't even know they're Israel. And this is the name by which he will be called. Adonai Zedekinu, the Lord our righteousness. So back in the days of Jeremiah, the Lord said that Yeshua was coming. And for him to be the Lord our righteousness means he had to die for us. To be buried and raised again to life eternal. Isn't that cool? It really is. And if you go to Jeremiah 33, it adds to this prophecy. Prophecy. 
Jeremiah 33, 15. In those hey, days... Yes, sir. Just a quick question. The Lord our righteousness, you said that's how we... That's telling the Jewish people the day that he had to die for us. How does that... Can you expand on that a little bit? How can we become righteous in the eyes of God? How can we have our sins taken away? Before Messiah, the animal sacrifices covered it over, but they didn't take it away. It wasn't until Messiah died that his blood was sufficient to take our sins away. Right? Yes. That's how. Thank you. Yep. So in Jeremiah thirty-three fifteen, it adds to it. It tells us more specifically the time. In those days, those days started in the days of Messiah 2,000 years ago, but then it adds, and at that time. What does the phrase at that time mean? The tribulation period. The time of the day of the Lord and the tribulation period comes to an end. I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. There's that Zamak again. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. It starts with the battle of Armageddon and goes through the sheep and goats judgment and then he sits on the throne. In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. I hear people on uh, YouTube saying that Jerusalem and Judah dwell safely today. They don't suffer any attacks. They live in perfect peace. And then the next guy says, rockets are falling on Jerusalem by the thousands. So when they dwell safely, it's not until the day of the Lord. And this is the name by which she will be called. Adonai Zedekinu, the Lord our righteousness. When does a woman take the man's name? At the wedding. I think that's pretty cool. Go to Zechariah chapter 3 verse 8. You say, but we've already studied that. Yeah, but I forgot already. Zechariah chapter 3 verse 8. Hero Joshua the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. That's the Zamak. My servant. Where is Messiah called my servant? In Isaiah chapter 43 and following. Yep. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon the stone are seven eyes. That's the seven spirits of God. From Isaiah 11 and Revelations 5 and 6. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts. Ooh, what kind of prophecy? In times. And I'll remove the iniquity of that land in one day. That happens at the battle of Gog and Magog. Mm -hmm. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree, which is a symbol for what? The messianic kingdom. Wow. All that's because he's called the branch. Go back to Zechariah chapter 6. Verse 12 ended with, He shall build the temple of the Lord. Now wait a minute. There's, there's no temple at the moment. But there's going to be one real soon. 
But what happens to that temple? The false Messiah is going to desecrate it. He's going to set up an idolatrous image, just like Antiochus Epiphanes did. He's going to sacrifice a sow pig on God's altar. He's going to sit on the throne of God and declare himself to be God. Is Messiah just going to walk into that temple and say, that's okay, I'll, I'll just sit here and we'll keep bowing? No. So he's going to rebuild the temple, right? Yeah, as described in Ezekiel chapter 43. Um, Isn't that one kind of a uh, thousand times bigger? I don't know about a thousand times, but it's going to be pretty nice, pretty big, pretty well-appointed. Yeah. yeah. What's that? That's not with hands. No, Messiah's going to build it. Yeah. Not too long ago, there was a Seventh-day Adventist tent set up up in the southern part of Tennessee. And people were invited to come see it, walk through. Did anybody go up and walk through it? If you did, the first place they took you into a room to describe the various temples... When they got to Ezekiel 43, they said, now this prophecy failed. That temple was never built and never will be built. At that point, I said to my wife, we're in the wrong place. (laughs) Does God's prophecies ever fail? No. They can't. That's right. God says the moon is made out of green cheese. It is. Yep. So that's the first sign that, well, maybe the Seventh-day Adventists Theology has a couple boo-boos in it. Yeah. But he will build the temple of the Lord. It's true that Joshua and Zerubbabel built the second temple. But it's also true that our Messiah Yeshua will build the millennial temple in which he will sit. And verse 13 goes on, yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. It's like people are going to go, no, the Lord's not going to build the temple. In fact, if you read the Left Behind series, how many of you read that? When the two witnesses show up, if you remember, at the temple, they rebuke Israel for having built a temple because there's never going to be another temple. Is that what your Bible says? No, mine says the Lord's going to build a temple. People go, why? They don't need to be saved through the sacrifices anymore. Well, they never were saved by keeping sacrifices and keeping commandments. That was never the purpose. How do we know? Give me a verse. Galatians 3. Yep, that's in Hebrews chapter 9. The blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. But go to Galatians 3. It tells us specifically by Paul that salvation was never by the works of the law. It never was. Galatians 3. Verse 5. Galatians chapter 3, verse 5. Let me let you find it. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the Lord, by the hearing of faith? Everybody says? Faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Verse 17 of the same chapter, Galatians 3.17, And this I say, that the law, which was given 430 years later at Mount Sinai, 
That's how long it was after this promise was to Abraham of salvation by faith. Now this I say that the law which was 430 years later cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Messiah. That's the covenant with Abraham that salvation is by faith. It's confirmed in Messiah because it was Messiah's shed blood that confirms the covenant. That it should make the promise of no effect. So once God has a covenant, will he ever break it? Give me a verse. Psalm 89 verse 34. My covenant I will not break. Or alter the word that has gone out of my mouth. So once God says salvation is by faith, can he change his mind and go, well, well, I'd rather it be by blood of bulls and goats and rams. The answer is no. And that's what Paul says here in Galatians. The keeping of commandments was never a way of salvation. It was a way for those who were saved by faith to walk in obedience to God. Honoring a loving father. So back to Zechariah chapter 13. And what we see is mind-blowing. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory. He shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne. And a council of peace shall be between them both. And the children of Israel be going, what? A priest can't reign on the throne. The, the king has to be from the tribe of Judah. And the priests have to be from the tribe of Levi. Ah, but Messiah is not from the order of Levi. He's of the order of Melchizedek. That is entirely different. So this is a prophecy that he, Messiah Yeshua, will be both king and priest. Let me remind us of Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. What does Messiah promise to you and I? That we will be, verse 6, Revelation 1, 6. And it's made us, the believers, kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. How can he make us kings and priests? Because he is king and priest of the order of Melchizedek. Where do we find that, that he's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek? Psalm 110. Let's go to Psalm 110. So the children of Israel are not understanding this prophecy a whit, because anything is talking just about Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the civil ruler. They're two people. That's why there's two crowns. How can they sit on one throne and be king and priest together when they're two people? But they picture, they point to Messiah who's both king and priest. Psalm 110 verse 1. You know this psalm, a psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand to make your enemies your footstool. But it goes on. Verse 4 says, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, that priesthood is the priesthood in heaven. Not the physical temple on earth, which is a copy of which is in heaven, but it's the original. 
So in verse 13, he's a priest sitting on a throne. We just looked at Psalm 110 verses 1 to 4. Now let's go to Hebrews chapter 5. Doc mentioned Hebrews a minute ago. He knew we were going there. Hebrews chapter 5 verses 5 to 11. Somebody will ask me, Wayne, how do you know it's talking about Yeshua? I'll say, well, let's read Hebrews chapter 5. Starting in verse 5, it says, So also Messiah did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today have forgot I have begotten you. That's Psalm first, Psalm chapter 2. As he also says in another place, that other place is Psalm 110, verse 4, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered and having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who what? Obey him. Called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain. It is hard to explain, but he says I got much to say, and he says that in Hebrews chapter 7. In Hebrews chapter 7, he tells us about Melchizedek, which was a character back in the book of Genesis. It says, chapter 7, verse 1 of Hebrews, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, what's Salem? Salem means peace. So he's the king of peace. Melchizedek means what? King of righteousness. So he's the king of righteousness and the king of priests of peace. Or you might say, Sar Shalom from Isaiah 9. On the most high God, who made Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, that's Melchizedek, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Here's the key as to identifying this person. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. How many people can you think of in the Bible or in history that had no mother, no father, no beginning, and no end? Just one. Yeah. So Paul says it's hard to understand, just trust me. Okay. And then we go to Hebrews chapter 6. Verses 19 and 20. For the law made nothing perfect. That wasn't its purpose. On the other hand, there's the bringing of a better hope through which we draw near to God. I'm in the wrong chapter, aren't I? Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Yeah. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. That's the Holy of Holies. Where the forerunner has entered for us, even Yeshua, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. (laughs) 
Let's go to Revelation 5.10. Revelation 5.10. Revelation 4 is the rapture. And Revelation 5, the rapture and resurrected saints are singing a new song. That's the same new song that we read about in Isaiah chapter 26 so long ago. Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song saying. What's that word saying? It's a quote. These are the very words that you and I will sing one day. So let's start working on them. You, referring to Messiah Yeshua, are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. So he hasn't opened the first seal yet. And where are these saints singing? In heaven. For you were slain. That's the crucifixion. Have redeemed us to God by your blood. That's Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12 and Isaiah 53. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. That's what we read in Revelation 1.6 wasn't it? It was indeed. So let's go back to Zechariah. That was verse 13, so how about we go to verse 14. Now the elaborate crown, what change are you going to make? It is again plural, so put an S. Shall be for a memorial in the temple of the Lord for Halem, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. How about that? Those crowns that were made from the gold and silver provided by these returnees from the Babylonian captivity will be kept in the temple that Messiah will build when he comes as a memorial to the faith and the love that these men had for the Lord God. Isn't that cool? That's cool. Yeah. Let's add a little more to all this, to verses 12 and 13. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 43. Ezekiel 43. And let's see Messiah take his seat in the temple. Ezekiel chapter 43. And as we start to read, I want you to think about Matthew chapter 17 and the Mount of Transfiguration. And how Messiah glowed so brightly that the disciples just couldn't look upon him. As he bore the glory of the Lord. Ezekiel 43 verse 1 said, Afterward he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces toward the east. That's the eastern gate or the golden gate of the temple mount. The Jewish sages told us that if you stand on the temple mount where they slaughter the red heifer and look through or across the golden gate, the eastern gate, you would look right into the Holy of Holies. Have you been up on the Mount of Olives and looked across the eastern gate? Were you looking at the Dome of the Rock? No, the Dome of the Rock was to the south. So the temple will be built on the north end of the temple mount on what's called the Dome of the Spirits, that little cupola 
which is the other part of exposed bedrock. And there's a specially shaped stone there that the ancients told us the high priest would stand upon when he put the blood on the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement once a year. Could that have been the stone that Abraham offered Isaac on? I think the one where the Holy of Holies sat, where the um, Ark of the Covenant itself sat, was the stone. But we'll see. Or, even more likely, if you go just north of that, that's Golgotha where Messiah was crucified. That could have been the spot. Yeah. Okay, verse 2. And behold, the glory of the Lord. Come on in. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. The way of the east is he's coming from the Mount of Olives. Zechariah 14 told us when Messiah returns, he sets his feet on the Mount of Olives. That's in Zechariah 14, verse 3. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. His voice like the sound of many waters is the way Messiah's voice is described in Revelation 1.15 and Revelation 18. And the earth shone with his glory is like Matthew chapter 17, the Mount of Transfiguration. Verse 3 says, It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city. That's in early Ezekiel. When Ezekiel saw the throne of God. So it says, the visions were like the vision I saw by the river Chabar, and I fell on my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the gate which faces toward the east. It is because of this verse that Suleiman the Magnificent, the Ottoman Turkish leader, put a Muslim graveyard in front of the eastern gate. Saying that Messiah, being an Orthodox Jew, would never walk through a grave because that would make him unclean. But in Zechariah 14, when Messiah sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, half of it goes to the north, half of it to the south. There goes the graveyard. Solomon was right. Messiah won't walk through the graveyard. He'll just move it first. Verse 5, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. That's the inner court of the temple. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Then I heard it. Oh, I got to tell you. The windows in the temple are angled funny. When we build windows, we make them so the light shines from outside in. In the temple, they're angled to shine the light from the inside out. So when the glory of the Lord fills the temple, it's going to shine out and illuminate the entire temple mount. They heard him speaking to me from the temple while a man stood beside me. He said to me, son of man, this is the place of my throne. What's that mean? This is where Messiah will rule and reign through the messianic kingdom. In the place of the soles of my feet, which makes no sense until you think of ancient Israel. To show possession of land, you walked it. And when you transferred a piece of land, think of the book of Ruth. You actually took off the sandal that walked the land and you give it to the new owner as a sign of passing over the land from one owner to another. Here's the dirt on my shoe that you now own. For I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. No more captivity. No more diaspora. No more conquering. 
This is the one place where all Jewish scholars and all Christian scholars can agree. This hasn't happened yet. No more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name, they nor their kings, by their harlotry, which is idolatry. So no more idolatry. Or with the carcasses of their kings on their high places. The high places were where they worshipped idols. And if you remember, Josiah burned the bones of the kings at their high place. In 1 Kings chapter 13 was the prophecy later fulfilled by Josiah. And then look at verse 12. Messiah is now seated on the throne, ruling and reigning forever. And verse 12 says, this is the law of the temple. The whole area surrounding the mountaintop is most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. Now in Revelation 11, when John was told to measure the temple, he was told to leave out that which is outside the courtyard because it was given over to the Gentiles. That's where the Dome of the Rock stands now and will continue to stand. Once Messiah returns, will there be a Dome of the Rock? No. The entire top of the mountain is most holy, this law of the temple. And then it goes on to give the measurements of the altars, etc. Verse 18, and he said to me, Son of man, thus says the Lord God. It's actually the, my Lord, the Lord. These are the ordinances for the altar on the day when it's made, for sacrificing burnt offerings on it, for sprinkling blood on it. So when people say, there will be no more sacrifices, I say, that's not what my Bible says. Even the Baptist commentary says, well, clearly there's going to be animal sacrifices, but we don't know why. Because they're thinking the animal sacrifices were to take away sin, and they didn't. They only covered them over. Only the blood of Messiah could be described as John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Those sacrifices then will still only cover sin. So how will they have their sin removed? Those sacrifices will be a teaching. Children, you have sinned. That's why this lamb has to die. But the blood of this lamb cannot take away your sin. It's a picture, a teaching of what that king sitting on that throne over in the temple did for you over 2,000 years ago. Because the blood of bulls, lambs, and goats can't take away sin, he had to die. The sinless one shed his blood to die in your place. That's the picture of the sacrifices, right? The innocent dying in place of the guilty. There's only been one holy, innocent man in all of humanity. And that's our Messiah Yeshua. That's why his blood can atone for you and me. And not just atone for, but expiate the blood. Take it away. And he does that through repentance. Yes. Repentance first, always. That was the law of the sacrifices. You had to repent first, then bring the sacrifice. And in Isaiah chapter 1, the Lord's saying, you're bringing the sacrifices, but you're not repenting. And a sacrifice without repentance is a dead animal. Yeah, let's go to Isaiah 2. Isaiah 2 describes the same time period as Ezekiel 43. I'm sure you all knew that. I almost asked if you knew that. I'm sure you knew that. Isaiah 2 describes the same time period as Ezekiel 43. 
Isaiah 2, verse 2. If you've never changed your Bible, get ready to fix it. Now, it shall come to pass in the latter days. The phrase latter days is not correct. In Hebrew, it's acharitayamim. It is the end of days. In the Hebrew published Bible, it's capitalized. It's what you and I call the Messianic kingdom. So it shall come to pass in the end of days that the mountain of the Lord's house, the mountain in prophecy is a kingdom, so it's the Messianic kingdom, shall be established on the top of the mountain, shall be exalted above the hills. So his kingdom will be over all kingdoms of the earth. That's why in Revelation 19 he's called what? King of kings and Lord of lords. And all nations shall flow to it. Which nations? All, all nations. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. The house of the God of Jacob is the temple. Who's sitting in the temple as king? Messiah. Messiah. He, Messiah, will teach us his ways. And we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion, which is prophetic Jerusalem, shall go forth the Torah. What's Messiah teaching from the throne? The Torah, the law. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Of course, we read the same thing in Micah chapter 4. But I want to go to Isaiah 9. Because Micah chapter 4 reads almost identical to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. And in your mind, just think of the song, And his name will be called. For unto us a child is born. That was the birth of Messiah in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Unto us a son is given. That's not that birth 2,000 years ago. That's Messiah returning to rule and reign. The word in the first clause, a child is yelled, and the son is bane. Two different H's. And the government will be upon his shoulder. When? At the first coming or second? Second coming. And his name will be called, that's Vayachashemo, wonderful counselor. In your Bible you have wonderful comma counselor, take out the comma. Wonderful counselor. El Gibor, mighty God. Everlasting Father is wrong. It's Ad Olam. It's Father of Eternity. That is, he's the creator of all things, as John 1, 1 and Colossians 1 tells us. And Sar Shalom, Prince of Peace, which fits right in there with Hebrews chapter 7. <coughs> of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. You guys know that word increase in Hebrew is Lamarbe. And that M sound is a maim, which is not unusual, except it's the only place in the Hebrew Bible where that maim is a sophit form, which is a final form. It's only in a final form at the end of a word, and here it's in a final form in the middle of a word. And the final maim looks like a closed square. And the Jewish sages, before the time of Messiah, said Messiah will be a virgin birth, that that Final name in Lamarbe indicates the closed womb of a virgin. After the time of Messiah, they said, oh, we blew that. But prior to the birth of Messiah, they were expecting a virgin birth. Of the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end. Now, wait a minute. Any human being that's just simple flesh and blood with two human parents, they can't rule forever. They're going to die eventually. Only Messiah who is God incarnate, can rule forever and ever with no end. 
upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. That's the king who's sitting in Isaiah 2 and in Ezekiel 43 and in Micah chapter 4, etc. To order it and establish it with judgment and justice. That's chapter 11 of Isaiah. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. That Lord of hosts, Adonai Zavaot, tells us what kind of prophecy? In times prophecy. Okay, let's go back to Zechariah. Let me check the time. Okay. If I ever forget and just keep going, y'all feel free to go, yo, wait a minute. We're hungry. So back to Zechariah. Chapter 6. In verse 14, we had to change crown to crowns because that's what the Hebrew says. The reason there's two crowns, one for the high priest, one for Zerubbabel, the civil leader. And a picture, a point to Messiah who will be both priest and king. Verse 15, even those from afar shall come and build the temple of the Lord. What does it mean even those from afar? Even Gentiles are going to bring things for rebuilding the temple. Then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. If you casually think about, did it say? No, if you diligently obey. Let's go back to Isaiah 60 and see where it says that the Gentiles will be involved in the rebuilding of the temple. I know there's some of us in here that have taken gold and silver to be used in the rebuilding of this next temple. <coughs> Isaiah chapter 60, verses 10 to 12. The sons of foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Therefore your gates, talking about Jerusalem, shall be open continually. That is, all people will be free to go up in the Messianic kingdom. We read about it in Isaiah 2. They shall not be shut day or night, that men may bring to you the wealth of the Gentiles and their kings in procession. Is Isaiah 2 and Micah 4 the only prophetic scriptures that say all the nations are going to come up to Jerusalem every year? We also have Zechariah 14, 16, right? That all the nations are going to come every year to worship our Messiah, the King, and to keep the feast of which? Tabernacles. All right, let's turn our attention to Zechariah chapter 7. Zechariah chapter 7, verse 1 through chapter 8, verse 23 are going to describe a series of four messages. Four messages. Starting in chapter 7, verse 1. Now, is it really going to be now? Nah, it's just going to be and. In the fourth year of King Darius, it came to pass that the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, Chislev. 
If God didn't have a mean old English teacher that gave him a thousand page book to write, why is it tell us this in the fourth year of King Darius? Why do we care? We can check it out. We can check it out. But you can also go back to Zechariah chapter 1 verse 1 and see the prophecies in the book of Zechariah start in the eighth month of the second year. So it tells us how much time has passed since Zechariah began prophesying. So it's not like everything came to him in one night. It's been just over two years since he began to prophesy. And the significance of the fact that it's in the fourth day of the ninth month, Chislev. Chislev is the month in which Hanukkah will fall in the future. When do we get the festival of Hanukkah? Not till the time of the Maccabees in Daniel chapter 8. But did God know it was coming? God knew it was coming. Oh, let's see. So verses 1 through 7 are going to contain the first of those four messages. And the message is that obedience is better than fasting. When does one fast? When one has sinned. It's better not to sin in the first place. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. He's speaking to Saul. Saul's in trouble. So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. I'm going to have to take a momentary break. So what do we learn from 1 Samuel chapter 15 verse 22 that is the same as what we're learning here in Zechariah? is that God would rather you not sin than to sin and have to offer a sacrifice or fast, etc. God wants us to be obedient children. So back to Zechariah. Chapter 7, verse 2. When the people sent Sherezer with Regem Melech and his men to the house of God to pray before the Lord. And here's what they're going to pray for, an answer to a question. And to ask the priests who are in the house of the Lord of hosts. What's the house of the Lord of hosts? That's the temple. And the prophet saying, should I weep in the fifth month and fast as I have done for so many years? That fast is the ninth of Av. And they're fasting on the ninth of Av because of the destruction of the first temple. They're saying now that the temple's been rebuilt, do we continue to fast over the destruction of the first temple? Or the fact that the temple's been restored to us, does that end the necessity of our fasting? That ninth of Av, or in Hebrew, Teshaba'av, has many 
significant events tied to it. First, it was a day that the spies brought back the bad report that we cannot go in and conquer the land. Because of that, many tragedies have happened in Israel on that same day. So the next thing that happens that I want you to put on the list, it may not be the only things that happen, but number two, the first temple was destroyed on Tisha B'Av in the year 586 BCE. So the same day that the spies brought back the bad report, the first temple fell hundreds of years later. The third event I want you to put on your list is that's the day the second temple fell in 70 common era destroyed by the Romans. Is that all? No. Number four, the Jews were expelled from Spain on that date in 1492. What else happened in 1492? Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Columbus was Jewish. Yeah. So as the Jews were expelled from Spain, he said, can we go to America and open up these new spice lanes? It's also the day that the Jews were expelled from England in the year 1290. 1290, 1290. Yeah, I know they're not in exactly the order, but I wanted to talk about Columbus. Okay. They also say that, well, Kristallnacht and other things are associated with it, but those five are enough to say when the Jews mourned that we can't go up and take the land when they could have if they just had faith in God, God said, I'll give you something to mourn about. So they've been mourning. But at any rate, their question is, now that the temple's been rebuilt, can we stop mourning over the destruction of the first one? And let's see the answer, because it might surprise you. Verse 4, then the word of the Lord of hosts, notice again the, the use of the word Lord of hosts, came to me saying, say to all the people of the land and to the priests, so this is to whom? Everybody. Everybody. When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months, referring to the fast of Gedalia, during those 70 years, that is the 70 years of the Babylonian captivity, he says, did you really fast for me? For me? Remember, they went into captivity because they turned away from God. They turned to pagan idolatry. Our people cut creches in the walls of the temple and put up pagan idols. They gathered in the courtyard of the temples, turned their backs on God to worship the rising sun. The women wept for Tammuz. They made cakes for the queen of heaven. He says, okay, you're mourning over the loss of the temple, really? Is that what you're really fasting over? Is that really where your heart was? The only commanded fast was from Kippur, so they declared those fasts. God didn't declare them. Right. They God didn't tell them to fast. They decided themselves to fast over it. He's saying, was it really for me? Was it really because your heart was broken over the sin? Is that really what it was? And that fasting of Delia, just put in your notes, 2 Kings chapter 25. Verses 21 to 26. But hey, we got a minute and a half, so let's go turn there. We'll go look. 
Second Kings chapter 25, verses 21 to 26. It's about a murder that takes place. 2 Kings chapter 25 verses 21 to 26. Second Kings 25 verses 21 to 26. Then the king of Babylon struck them and put them to death at Ribla in the land of Hamat. Thus Judah was carried away captive from its own land. That's the Babylonian captivity. Then he made Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, governor over the people who remained in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left. Now when all the captains of the armies, they and their men, heard that the king of Babylon had made Gedaliah governor, they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, Yochanan, the son of Kareah, Sariah, the son of Tanhumet, the Natophatite, and Jaazaniah, the son of Amakatite, they and their men. And Gedaliah took an oath before them and their men and said to them, Do not be afraid of the servants of the Chaldeans. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. But it happened in the seventh month that Ishmael, the son of Netaniah, the son of Elishama, of the royal family, came with ten men and struck and killed Gedaliah, the Jews, as well as the Chaldeans, who were with him at Mizpah. And all the people, small and great, and the captains of the armies arose and went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. So the king of Babylon had made Gedaliah the governor, and they arose and sneakily executed him. So they've been fasting over that too, realizing that, you know what? Murder's really not good in God's eyes. So let's go back to Zechariah. Verse 6. When you eat and when you drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? Meaning like Doc said, you decided to do the fast. I didn't command it. It was your decision. And if you think that's going to make things okay between you and me, God says, verse 7, should you not have obeyed the words which the Lord proclaimed through the former prophets when Jerusalem and the cities around it were inhabited and prosperous and the south and the lowland were inhabited? He says, you won't follow a single thing that I command you. And yet you think imposing a self-imposed fast is going to make things right. Is that going to make things right? No. What is? Repentance. They don't want to repent. They want to continue in their sin and have the blessing of the Lord. That's what the false prophets were telling them in Jerusalem, you remember. That you can continue in your sin and God will bless you anyway. And how well did that work out for them? Not at all. Well, we're out of time. We'll pick up in Zechariah next time in chapter 7. 
verse 8, which begins the second message. But remember, we have service Monday from 1030 to 1230. It is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And what kind of a feast do we have afterwards? None, because it's a fast. It is the one fast day that God commanded. So I hope to see you all Monday at 1030 hungry.